Well, welcome again to night 20 of Unlock Revelation. We have one night to go, so hang in there. And I want to thank you for being so faithful in your attendance. Let's have prayer. Gracious Lord, we thank you for the blessings that you have given us night by night. I'm thankful for all those who have attended. Please come into our hearts, come into our lives, and may we understand the teachings of your word. May we stand for your truth, no matter what. Come into our hearts, fill us, bless us, and may we be a blessing to others. In Jesus' name, amen. Tonight's topic is Back from the Wilderness. It deals with the restoration of biblical truth after centuries of misrepresentation. Over many centuries, a lot of the truths of God were lost, principally because the word of God was locked up in a language that the people couldn't understand. Even the religious leaders, many of them, were illiterate. They did not even uh, know Latin you see. After the fall of the Roman Empire, when the barbarians came in, books, what manuscripts and so forth they had, many of them were burned as the invaders came in and plundered and started to burn things. And so we find that they began to mix some of the ideas of the heathen people who came in with Christianity. And the Bible tells us that at the end times there will be a reformation from the mystery teachings of the Scarlet Woman. That which was lost will be rediscovered and that the remnant people will spiritually, remnant people will be the spiritual Israel of God and return back to the true teachings of the Word of God. So tonight, as we enter into this topic, I want to draw your attention to the picture of this man here. World War II ended in 1945, but there was one Japanese soldier who fought on for 29 more years. His name was Hiro Onoda. He was 23 years old. He was a second lieutenant in the Imperial Army. And he was stationed on Lubang, not far, about 100 miles from Manila in the Philippines. And it was a small island, and he kept fighting. Many of his men disappeared. He thought they were killed. He didn't know what happened to them, but he was faithful to his nation. And he kept right on fighting. One day, a plane flew over and dropped leaflets. And the leaflet said that the war was over. But he just thought that it was propaganda. And he read it. He discarded it. He didn't believe it. He was going to be faithful. His commander said, you stay here till we tell you otherwise. And so he did. He thought he was being tricked. He continued his guerrilla attacks against the citizens on Lubang Island. Eventually, they found out about him and they tried to convince him 
that the war was over and he needed to stop fighting. But it didn't do any good. Many years later, a Japanese man was visiting Lubang Island. And he also came into contact with this lieutenant. He chased him down, actually. He went looking for him. And he finally found him. And he said, Lieutenant, the war is over. It's been over for 29 years. Come home. And Lieutenant Onoda said, no. He said, my commanding officer told me to stay here until he told me otherwise. And I'm not going to go home unless he himself comes and tells me otherwise. Well, the news got back to Japan, and they finally located his commanding officer. His commanding officer had retired from the military. He was actually a bookseller. And they said, this man won't stop fighting. He's still attacking the people on this island. Something needs to be done. And so his commanding officer realized what he had to do. He got on a plane, he went to the Philippines, and finally he found Lieutenant Onoda. And he says, the war is over. You can come home now. And this soldier finally believed the commanding officer. He made his way back to Japan. And when he arrived in Japan, he received a hero's welcome. Because he had been faithful to his nation, out there in the wilderness, he was still faithful to what he had been told to do. He was true to his duty. My friends, the Bible tells us that the wilderness is not always just a desert island, but there are also spiritual wildernesses where people are not exposed to the truth of God. In the word of God, we're told that God's church would uh, come back after being in the wilderness for a long time, just like that Japanese soldier. As a matter of fact, in Revelation 12:1, we read, And now a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman, remember we said a woman is a church or a religious organization, clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. Stars are messengers. Okay? Uh, We find that in the book of Revelation, chapters 1 and 2, and even over into 3, it mentions stars in reference to the leaders of the different churches the messengers there, and the sun and the moon. The Old Testament and the New Testament upon which this woman or church is standing. And it said a garland around her head. That's like a crown of victory. Why? This is the pure, chaste virgin. Remember we talked about two women in the Bible, the scarlet woman and the pure woman. This is what it's in reference to. And notice it said, A great sign appeared in the heavens. Then the woman fled into the wilderness. She fled. Why? Because she was being chased. 
she was being chased by the dragon. The dragon forces were after her because she would not cooperate with them. And she fled to the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God. It wasn't something humans made. God had directed her to the wilderness. And then it says that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Now get that. That's 1260. We've run into that number before, haven't we? 1260. And of course, in Bible prophecy, we know from Ezekiel and Leviticus, which we've talked about before, that a day is equivalent to a year in prophetic time. Notice what it says here, Revelation 12, 13 and 14. Now when the dragon, that symbolizes Satan or satanic forces, saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle. I'm going to stop right there before I continue with that verse. Let's look at this. Notice, when the devil saw that he had been cast to the earth. That's interesting. Most people are not aware of the fact that Satan was defeated three times. Three times. We find that the first time it says he was cast out of heaven. Remember the conflict between Michael and Satan? It says he was cast out of heaven, he and his angels. That's the first casting of Satan. The second was at the cross. He thought he could defeat Christ. Actually, he made a terrible blunder in killing Jesus. Because what he really wanted Jesus to do was to give up and go home. Because that way the whole race would be lost, you see. And it would show that, well, God's expecting us to keep the commandments that even his, his own son couldn't keep. So he could lay charges against him. But Jesus went all the way to the grave. And then he had a big problem on his hands. Because how to keep Jesus in that grave? As a matter of fact, he stationed a whole company of a whole legion of soldiers around to make sure that Jesus stayed in the grave. Didn't work. You see, Jesus took the worst weapon the devil could use and he defeated him with it. What's the worst thing the devil can do to you? Cheryl, what's the worst thing the devil can do to you? Huh? Kill you, right? I mean... If we stick needles and pins in you now, you go, ouch, ouch, ouch. But once you're dead, we could run a knife through you and you wouldn't say anything. You see? That's the worst thing he could do to you. So Jesus went into the grave and defeated the devil on his own turf. And he didn't stay there. When he came out of the grave, the devil was defeated. He knew that he didn't have much time left. And the scripture says that. He's going around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour because he knows that he hasn't got much time left. 
and that Jesus is coming again to crush him for the, the final time. And so we find that he turns his wrath against the believers in Christ. The third casting down of Satan is when at the, at the second coming of Jesus, when he is captured and it says he's put in the bottomless pit, the desolate earth. So we find that Satan's a three-time loser. And anybody who wants to join in with him and side with him, hey, you're on the wrong side. Okay? Notice it says that he persecuted the woman. He persecuted the church who gave birth to the male child. Who's the male child? It's Christ. And we find that he persecuted the believers. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle. Now, the eagle is the king of the birds. And where did she go? That she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. Serpent, dragon, symbols of Satan, right? So what is this saying? This is saying that she fled. Now we mentioned before that a wilderness is an area that's not well populated. When we talk about the seas and waters, that's a populated area. The old world was well populated. But the new world was a wilderness. And so what happens? We find that those who were being persecuted because of their religious beliefs had to get out of town and out of the country. This is how the pilgrims got over here. This is how the Huguenots got over here. This is how many of the people who were persecuted got over here. When I was living in the Cadillac area, I had an opportunity to give Bible studies to a man who was born in Holland. Not Holland, Michigan. Holland, Holland in the Netherlands. And he's the first person I have ever met who was born in a windmill. And his mother used to tell him, and he was in his 80s by the time I met him, but he he told me his mother used to tell him about how Christians were being persecuted in Holland and how they had to hide out and they had to survive on certain things or they'd be arrested and thrown in jail. And so we find that the best way to handle that was to get out of town. That's why our nation was founded on religious freedom. That's why when we talked about the second beast of Revelation, it had two horns that came up, separated from one another, church and state. It was a nation founded without a king, without a monarch, and without a pope. It was to separate the two. Later on, we see the prophecy says that there's going to be a tendency for the blending of church and state again and persecution start up again. As we look at this, it said that she would have to hide in the wilderness. Now, not just the wilderness of the new world, because that's relatively new. But in olden times, they had to get out of the country. 
They had to get away from the persecutors. So where did they go? They went up into the mountains. We find such groups as the Waldenses, the Albigenses, the Huguenots in France, and the others were in Italy and Switzerland. They had to get out of the areas where they would be persecuted when they started to have possession of the scriptures or sharing their faith. And so they fled, both in the old world and the new world. And it says, for a time, times, and half a time. Now that's interesting, because both Daniel and Revelation uses that same terminology. They both use the same terminology. What does it mean? We find that a time means a year. Okay? What is times? It's a year times two. Two years. Okay? And a half a time is half a year. Now you need to realize that in the Bible, a biblical year is 360 days. They were basing it on an agricultural year. Our year is 365, you know. But we find that their year that they based it on was 360. Okay, now, if a time is one year or 360 days, what would two times 360 be, you mathematicians? 720. And what would half of 360 be? 180, right? Now, if you add up 360, 720, and 180, okay, it comes up to a total of 1260. That's the same time period that we read into before. That was the time period between 538 A.D. when papal supremacy was exalted and the Pope became corrector of heretics. We talked about that. And when did he fall? In 1798, he lost his temporal power and the Pope was arrested and died in jail in France. You see. And that effectively brought an end to that period of papal supremacy, papal persecution. It took, if you take 538 and subtract it from 1798, you come up with 1260. Just what the scripture said. And notice why, because of the persecutions that were going on in Europe, they had to flee to the mountains, they had to flee to the New World or wherever they could go to get away from persecution so that they could have religious freedom to worship God and to have the scriptures in their own tongue that they could read and study the word of God. And so we find that this period of persecution was long. It was painful. Many people were killed. Millions of people were put to death for their faith. Some burned at the stake. Some tortured. Drawn and quartered. Uh, I could really get quite graphic with you on some of them, but if you want to find out more, read the book, Fox's Book of Martyrs. And also the book, Great Controversy, 
talks about a lot of these things. But there's a number of books that you can look in that talks about this time period. And during this time, the Bible, you couldn't have it. If you, it had to be copied by hand. But if I wanted to share scriptures with David, I'd have to do it secretly. Because my life was at stake. And this was a time of intense persecution. The Bible now was considered a forbidden book. There was an index published. And any kind of books that dealt with subjects other than what the church authorized were forbidden. And the scripture even was forbidden. And so this went on for 1260 years. During this time period, there were many things that were creeping into the church. Many superstitions were starting to come in. We mentioned before about the Sabbath. The Sabbath day was then replaced by the day for the sun. The sun's day. And the church in the wilderness had to make a decision. Were they going to accept this or not? The Bible was replaced by the catechisms and the authority of the church and councils and their decisions. We find also that other things began to creep in. And there were those who stood against it. Now it's very interesting because my Celtic, Irish ancestry, the patron saint, we celebrate him every March 17th, right? What's his name? St. Patrick. And everybody knows the story of St. Patrick. St. Patrick drove the snakes out of Ireland. You know what? There are a few things that most people don't realize about this Roman Catholic saint who drove the snakes out of Ireland. Number one, Patrick was not even Irish. He was from England and later on went to school in France. But he had been captured as a a slave and taken to Ireland. And while he was there, he had a burden for these people who were in total spiritual darkness. And when he finally got free, he became a missionary and went back. Secondly, not only was he not Irish, St. Patrick was not even Roman Catholic. St. Patrick was a member of the Celtic Christian Church. The Celtic Church, you've probably seen crosses with a circle around the inside of it. That's the Celtic symbol. The Celtic Church did not accept the authority of the papacy. Also, did he drive the snakes out of Ireland? No, because there were never any snakes in Ireland, you see. It's like uh, I drove the elephants out of Michigan. You know? So what did he do when he had such an effect on the people that he drove the serpent, speaking of the devil, and, and the, uh, um, the pagan aspects of it, he drove that out. So a lot of people say he drove out the uh, real serpents. Another thing about Patrick is St. Patrick kept the seventh 
day Sabbath. He was a Sabbath keeper. This is historical, folks. You can look it up. And so we find that there were still all over Europe and later in the United States, there were those who were keeping the Sabbath, even in Africa. Now, I'm told by some of my African friends that the name Kwame, you know, if, if a man has the first name Kwame, that means Sabbath, Saturday. They were born on Saturday, so they took that name. And in Africa, the Coptic church, and in Africa, they were keeping the seventh-day Sabbath. And when the white foreign missionaries came in and converted them over to the predominant Christianity, they switched over to Sunday, but interestingly enough, they still referred to the seventh day as Sabbath. And what did they call Sunday? They gave Sunday the name of the white man's day. They called Sunday the white man's day because that's when he went to church. But they were still observing the Sabbath. And we find that all over this spread. You know the old expression, when in Rome, do as the Romans do? That goes back to the time of St. Monica, I think it was. She went to her bishop and she said, my son's going to go to Rome and he's got a problem. Because in Rome, they keep Sunday. But in the rest of the empire, they keep Saturday. What should we do? And St. Ambrose said to her, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. You see, that's where that expression comes from. So we have words and expressions we use today not realizing the historic roots of those. Remember I told you about John Huss. John Huss who stood up against the persecutions of the church. And as a result, he got burned at the stake. And Huss means goose. So his goose was cooked. So some of these expressions we have have historical roots that date back to ancient times and the conflicts that went on in the church. And so God says, I know you're in confusion. You're in Babylon. You're in a state of lack of understanding because you don't have the word of God. He says, but I'm going to point you out of this. I'm going to show you the way to go. I want to guide you by what? The word of God. And so we find that the printing press comes in. And the printing press now takes the word of God and puts it in the hand of a common man. Before this, there were those who came up. Scholars who came up, who, who had copies and could read the word of God in the Latin and in the Greek and in the Hebrew. And they would tell the people what it said. I'm thinking of such men as, as Peter Waldo, who started the Waldensian movement. Also, um, John Wycliffe. He was called the morning star of the Reformation because he was already trying to bring people back out of the wilderness and back into the word of God. 
But he also was working under great handicap. Notice what it says in Revelation 12, 17. It tells us, and the dragon was enraged with the woman. In, in the old King James, I believe it says wroth with the woman, which means the same thing. The dragon was really, really mad at the woman. Why? And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring. Now, what does that mean, rest? Another word for that in the New Testament is remnant. Remnant. What does remnant mean? Remnant is the last of a long bolt of cloth. The remnant is made of the same stuff as the rest of the bolt was, right? But it's just the tail end of it. What is it saying? It's saying that the rest of her offspring, the remnant of the woman who had to flee to the wilderness, the end time church would be resurrecting and teaching the same things that the early church got persecuted for teaching. You see, it would be a restoration. It would be a reformation. A lot of people today do not want to be called Protestants. They say, well, I'm not a Protestant. I'm I'm an evangelical. Well, folks, evangelical means you just spread the gospel. That's what it means. These people were spreading the gospel, but they were protesting against those things that are not right, those things that are not biblical. I want you to know I'm a Protestant. I may be evangelical in sharing the gospel and spreading the gospel to the world, but I am a Protestant who is protesting against those things that the devil has hoisted on us. And God is calling us to bring people back to biblical light. And notice the rest of her offspring. Now, how do you identify them? What are some of the things he's calling us back to? Notice, who keep the commandments of God. Now, that doesn't mean 9 out of 10. doesn't mean 8 out of 10. It means 10 out of 10. Right? Okay. And have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, that's interesting, the testimony of Jesus Christ. Because in another place it says they have the faith of Jesus Christ. In Jesus, and the same kind of faith that Jesus did. The kind that's trusting God, putting yourself aside and letting God rule. That's what the faith in Jesus is. The testimony of Jesus. Well, let's let the scriptures tell us what it is. Because the scripture will interpret itself. So we're looking for identifying markers of the remnant. It says, number one, that they would keep the commandments of God. And they would have the testimony of Jesus. I'll come back to that. I want you to notice also that it would be a worldwide movement. That it's going to the world. We find that the remnant will be teaching salvation by grace. Now, I want to get that straight because I know that 
if you go to some websites and if you look in some books, people are going to try to tell you, you Seventh-day Adventists, you all believe in righteousness by works. There's no such thing. Because your, your works can never bring you righteousness. We are saved by the grace of God. Why? Because of our faith in Jesus. You see. It's a salvation by grace. That's the same message that was taught by John Wesley. We're saved because of our faith. That's the same message that was taught by Martin Luther. Each of these men were gleaning gems. They were picking up stones on a beach. Gems of truth. Our responsibility in the last days as remnant is to take those gems that they picked up and put them into one jewelry box. Right? It's to take them and glean from those of the past and put them together. We can't forget the Anabaptists who discovered baptism by immersion. And the Baptist church has continued that right on through. We need to understand that biblical truth and put it in the gem box. You see, these things are coming one after another because nobody has a monopoly on the truth of God. Only the word of God does. And what we need to do is search it out and not to... Choose a church because we like the preacher. Choose the church because it's nearby. Choose the church because it has a nice nice building. Or it's popular. I like the music. I mean, those things are all good. You know, well, my family went there forever. All right, that's fine. That's wonderful. When you're looking for the remnant, when you're looking for the remnant church in the last days, look at what they're teaching. Is it biblical or is it not? And I don't care if I say it or anybody else says it, you have no obligation to believe anything I say if it's not biblical. Your salvation is at stake. And don't forget, a person could be led astray very easily. Check out what's being said, what's being preached. So the remnant will keep the commandments of God. Okay, that's one of the identifying marks. And the Ten Commandments you will find are being attacked today. You know, it's interesting that there are two things that are very important to God. One is His commandments. And what's another thing we got from the Garden of Eden? Marriage. Did you ever notice that they're both being attacked today? The family is being attacked. Nobody knows what a marriage is today. Nobody knows what a family is today. It's getting all mixed up. That's called Babylon. Confusion. And the same thing with the commandments of God. God is calling us back to that. And they're not the ten suggestions. They're the ten commandments. God is commanding us to do it. As we look further, we find that God wants his people to be a praying people in the last days. He wants us to pray for the Spirit of God to come into our hearts. That means every day we are to spend some time in prayer. 
We have to spend some time with the Word of God, helping us to understand the things we don't understand. In Revelation 14, it tells us that God's message will go to the world and it will be an end-time message. It will be the everlasting gospel to be taken to the world. That requires missionary outreach. I got news for you. The world begins right here in Midland, because you didn't know that. Are you telling any of your neighbors about Jesus, about the word of God? Are you witnessing to them at all? How does the world come to Christ unless people tell someone and they share it? Don't leave it up to the preachers. It won't get done, I'll tell you. They got so many committee meetings, board meetings, and trying to put out fires. It takes the individuals to share their faith. What is the everlasting gospel? That we are saved by grace alone through Jesus Christ. God sent his son that we might have life. Also, the remnant will be teaching a judgment hour message. Why should I behave myself? Because there's a judgment coming. Well, we shouldn't worry about the judgment. Let me tell you, folks, you're all afraid of the judgment in one way or another. If you're going down this street, what's the speed limit out here? 30? If you're going down this street and you choose to go 90, now you can choose that if you want, but the moment you see a little car with a red and blue light on the top, Did you ever notice without even thinking you let up on the gas and start putting on the brake? Because you know if you don't, there's a judgment. Right? And inherently, people know when they've done something wrong. I don't have to tell you when you're not doing anything wrong. You already know it. You just maybe sometimes trying to avoid it. (laughs) But God tells us there's a judgment coming and we need to make people aware of it. Why? So that they will come out of whatever they're doing. So that they will be prepared for the coming of the Lord. And that judgment, instead of being a judgment to convict them, it will be a judgment to vindicate them. And that's what God's people are, forgiven sinners. Notice, again, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. And we have many ways of doing that today, electronically and in person with missionaries. They're committed to taking this message all around the world. Now, what's it say in Revelation 12:17? And again, and the dragon was enraged with the woman and went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and had the testimony of Jesus. I told you I'd come back to that testimony of Jesus. What is that talking about? Let Revelation explain itself. This is a Bible principle, that the Bible does explain itself. If you see something like this, and you don't know what it means, look around, use a concordance, whatever you need. Find that similar expression elsewhere, and it may explain it to you. Look here, Revelation 19.10. It says, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That's what it says. It says that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So we can expect 
that the end time remnant people would have the spirit of prophecy. We're studying the prophets. We're studying what the prophets say. Their testimony about God. And that spirit of prophecy, some say, well, that's expired. That was in the Old Testament. You know, the New Testament doesn't talk about it. Well, what about Philip? Philip had four daughters who were prophets. Paul was a prophet. Peter was a prophet. John was a prophet. Where can you show me in the scripture that that was ever done away with? And we find that God's people are the recipients or the guardians of spiritual gifts that God gives us. As a matter of fact, the gift of prophecy is one of many gifts that God would give to the church. Now, when I say gift of prophecy, you need to realize that there are some who claim to be false prophets. Well, they don't claim it. We claim it, that they're false prophets. Why? Because what they're prophesying is not consistent with the Word of God. The Bible gives certain tests of a prophet that we need to be aware of. You can't have a counterfeit dollar bill unless you have a real one. How can you counterfeit something that doesn't exist, right? The very fact that you have a counterfeit dollar bill precludes that there is a real dollar bill somewhere. And you will find that you can't have false prophets unless you have real prophets. But their messages are going in the different directions. One's in harmony with the Word of God, one is not. And so it's our job to determine what are some of the things. First off, look at the life of the prophet. If a person says, I am a prophet of God, but yet his life is completely out of whack with the Scriptures, I think of David Koresh, for one. You know, who was sleeping with everybody's wife. Somehow that doesn't sound too harmonious with what a true prophet of God should be doing. And what about one who's making himself rich? Is he merchandising this? I don't know how many of you believe in Nostradamus or Gene Dixon. Did their prophecies come true? I remember when Gene Dixon predicted that the, what was it, uh, wasn't it, was it Toronto or Quebec World Fair that we had many years ago? I can't remember which one it was. She said that uh, there was going to be an earthquake and destroy it. It didn't happen. If a prophet is going to say something, unless it's a conditional prophecy, remember Jonah was, preaching a conditional prophecy. He says, unless you Ninevites repent, you're going to be destroyed. And then he was disappointed because they weren't destroyed. And he says, you've upset my ego because I knew you were a loving God and you wouldn't destroy these people. And God said, why should I? They repented. That was a conditional prophecy. You need to realize there's classical prophecy. That is, if, uh, let's say, Tony, if you go out the front door and I say, you go out that front door and somebody's going to throw a brick at you. He goes out the front door and bang, he gets hit with a brick. Okay? That is classical prophecy. It literally came true. 
Then there's another type of prophecy called apocalyptic prophecy. That's where you use ugly monsters and beasts and so forth to represent things. And that's what we've been talking about, you see. And so we need to understand the difference between them. And so a prophet also not only is called to talk about the future, but prophets have also been called to talk about the past. How did Moses know what the first day of creation was like? He wasn't alive. How did he know what it was like in the Garden of Eden? He wasn't there. You see, here's a case where you have a prophet who's prophesying backwards instead of forward. There were other prophets who interpreted the times in which they lived. You see, Jeremiah, Daniel, they were interpreting the times in which they lived as well as projecting into the future. So the word a prophet is very broad in that sense. And we find here that God tells us in 1 Corinthians twelve twenty-eight, he says, and God has appointed these in the church. Corinthians, he's talking about the New Testament church. He said, first, apostles. They go out and start up churches. Okay? They start it up, get them going, and move on and start another one. We might call them church planters today. The second are prophets. You see, they are the ones who are guiding the people, telling them what God's word and intentions are. The third are teachers. After that, miracles. Then gifts of healing, helps, administration, and various tongues. Now, there are those who who claim today that they are the true church of God because they can speak in tongues. You know what? That's way down at the bottom of the list, you see. And it's not just gibberish. It's tongues that people can understand. And notice here, by the way, I ran into a fellow, I won't get into that story, but who was a missionary to Africa, and he didn't have time to learn Swahili. And they put him right out in the middle of the jungle somewhere, and he had all these people around him, and he said, I don't know Swahili. Don't worry about it. We'll give you an interpreter. When he got there, the interpreter was sick. And they said, well, get up. There might be a few people who, who know the language, and they can tell the others. So he got up, and he, he started to preach in English. And he noticed everybody was paying attention to him. And when it was all over, one of the men said to him, I didn't know you could speak Swahili. He says, I didn't. I spoke in English. He said, no, you spoke perfect Swahili. And he's told me, he said, whenever I come into contact with a person from Africa, he says, I start speaking Swahili. It was a gift from God given for a specific purpose, not to go around and say, I'm better than you are because I can speak Swahili and you can't. That wasn't his attitude. So, God gives gifts as they are needed. Not everybody gets them. Now, let me ask you, the church today, does it still have teachers? Does it still have preachers? That's not listed there, but it's listed on the other list. Does it still have the gift of healing? Some of you are in the medical profession. 
something like Ben Carson. He's very good with working on your brain. You wouldn't want me to touch it. Some people are given certain gifts and talents. But you see, those are still in the church today. Well, if all those are still in the church today, wouldn't we expect that the church would have the gift of prophecy among it too? And so we find that these are things, many people will tell you, ah, they're not around anymore, they don't exist. But the scripture tells us, especially as we approach the last days, that that gift would be revived. But it has to be tested to make sure it's in harmony with the word of God. Notice, so let's look at these things. If you look in Jeremiah 28, 9, it says that the prophet needs to be accurate. What they say needs to be accurate. Now, prophets do make mistakes. Remember, David wanted to build the temple. And he says, does God want me to build the temple? And the prophet Nathan said, yeah, go to it. Before he got out, before he got out of the courtyard, he had to turn around and go back. He says, God just told me, because you're a man of blood, you can't build it. Your son will build it. You can gather the material for it, but you can't build it. See, he had to make a correction because he was speaking first from himself and the Lord had to correct him on it. So Jeremiah 28 says that it's important that what a prophet says comes into, indeed, uh, reality. Notice also, in harmony with the Bible, Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 3. Here it says in Deuteronomy that God would indeed appoint or lift up a prophet. It says somebody with the gift of prophecy will lift up or exalt God, will exalt Christ. Jesus lifted up the Father. We are to lift up Christ today. We find also in 1 John 4, 2, it says the same thing. And someone will bring a message from God. It won't contradict the law of God. So we find in Isaiah 8.20, this is an important text in determining what is a true prophet and what is a false prophet. Memorize it. To the law and to the testimony, that's the teachings of the prophets, the writings of the prophets, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. So we need to test them. And we need to see whether or not what they're saying is in harmony with the word of God. As we start thinking about this gift, we think that many Christian ministers today have said that the law is done away with. Well, if it's done away with, how can it be holy and pure? The people of God in the last days should have that among them. We find that we are to be a people of love. But you know, love demands obedience. Love demands obedience. And because of this, God is willing to give those who have an obedient heart the true love of Christ and it will radiate to others. Now, why did God give spiritual gifts in the first place? Well, he gave this gift of prophecy in particular, and I'm concentrating on prophecy tonight, 
because that's the one that's most often misunderstood. Why did he give the gift of prophecy? He gave it to warn people that there's some danger, whether it's a present danger or a future danger, that needs to be avoided. It needs that maybe they're drifting away from the Word of God to come back to it. What were some of the things that in the early church they drifted away from? Well, in the time of John the Baptist, they drifted away from the idea that they needed to repent, that they needed a Savior. They thought that they could be saved by their pedigree because they were descendants of Abraham. Your pedigree will never get you saved. We need to have that born-again experience. And so we find that this was constantly repeated in Scripture. It was to encourage people to surrender to God, to follow his path. And if a person is a prophet and they're actually consistent with the word of God, you can listen to them. But when they start parting from it, say, whoa, maybe I better check this out a little further here, we might be going on to a tangent. Another thing is that a prophet will not exalt himself above the scriptures. Now, I just mentioned to you a little while ago that I have here this commentary by Isaac Newton. He was a smart fellow, Isaac Newton was. A very, very talented man. And reading this, He has some very excellent things to say, but it's not on the same par as the Word of God. And we need to be careful that we don't exalt any writings above the Word of God. Let's move a little further, and we notice also that Amos tells us whenever there's an important thing coming up that God will tell his people ahead of time. Notice what Amos says. Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secrets to his servants, the prophets. He will tell us things to come. Let's go back to the flood. When the flood was about to break on the earth, who was there? Noah preached for 120 years, didn't he? But he was a latecomer. Methuselah was there. 969 years as long as Methuselah lived. Because the name Methuselah means after me comes the deluge. After me comes the flood. As long as Grandpa was alive, they knew that the flood was before them. But Methuselah died the very year that the flood came. So they had not only Noah, but they had Methuselah there. And we have John the Baptist telling that Christ is coming. We have Daniel telling about his prophecies, and uh, the, the uh, not only, well, it was Jeremiah who predicted they'd go into captivity. And at the end of the captivity, there was Daniel saying, whoa, the 70 years is almost over. What is God going to do now? You see, God has always had his prophets, often at the beginning and at the end. Now, some people don't realize that this gift of prophecy is for the purpose of preparing the remnant to bring back the truths that have been lost. We find that in the early 1800s, 
It was a time when people were curious. The papacy had just fallen in 1798. The Rosetta Stone had just been discovered in 1798. The falling of the stars, uh, the great earthquake of uh, 1780 had happened. We find that the moon being uh, darkened. 1733, the falling of the stars. These things they were looking at and they were saying something's about to happen. About this time, in various parts of the world, in South America, there was a Roman Catholic priest by the name of Manuel Lucunza. Because he was Catholic and what he was teaching was contrary to what his church taught, he had to change his name and he wrote under the name of Judah Ben Ezra because people would think he was a Jew instead of a Catholic priest. And he started to predict that we are approaching the time that some of these prophecies are coming to an end and that Jesus is coming soon. Over in England, there was Edward Irving. And I mentioned that there's a guy in Germany and various other places popping up. Here in the United States, there was a Baptist preacher. He actually was a farmer who became a preacher. His name was William Miller. And William Miller started to predict that Jesus was coming soon from his study of the book of Daniel. And by the way, that study, the importance of that event is the subject of Revelation 10, chapter 10. The little book that was sweet to his mouth. Jesus is coming soon. But you know what? He thought he was coming in 1844, and he didn't come. And it was a bitter experience to the people who were following him. What was his mistake? His calculations and everything were correct. But he had misunderstood the word sanctuary. That one word, just like many people misunderstand what the word rapture means. And they follow the common theology. And it it can lead them astray. And so we find that Christ didn't come. But there was, even after that, there was a great awakening that, hey, we're in end times and Christ is coming. The the event, he may have gotten wrong, but you you cannot fault him for the sincerity and the goodness of this man in predicting it. And there's a lot of fables that went up around him. People standing on the rooftop waiting for Christ to come, wearing long robes. Those things never happened. Those are myths. And if you want to find a book called The Midnight Cry, it will tell you they hunted down all these myths that went on, put out by those who were his his opponents. But we find that he woke America up to the need for the coming of Christ. Christ is coming. And we find that that truth could not be preached until the book of Daniel was really understood. And that wasn't until after 1798. And the longest time prophecy in the Bible said that the time of judgment and the end of time or end times would begin in 1844, moving on. 
So you see the sense of urgency that developed. Also, we find that God's people in the last days from studying scripture will be a people who will be sharing their faith. This particular book, Steps to Christ, is a book that was developed and written, I believe, it, it had to be divinely inspired. I don't mean in the sense the scripture was. But the one who wrote this, Ellen Gould White, she only had a third grade education. And yet many of her books are used in universities and colleges around the world. What she wrote on, on health is used around the world. In the days when doctors were prescribing tobacco and smoking for lung problems. That was the solution to problems with your lungs. Smoke. She was saying, no, tobacco is a slow, malignant poison, you see. And she's written a number of books. I want to share them with you in just a moment. I picked a few up here. If you want to check some out, on the back table, but some of you may have them on your table, This is called Happiness Digest, or Happiness for Life. This actually is uh, one of her books that has a a new cover just to try to make it updated and a little more with pretty pictures and all that in it. But if you look at this, you will find here, as you read it, and feel free to take a copy, these are principles for good everyday living. Here's one called Prophets and Kings, or excuse me, that's another one. This is Patriarchs and Prophets. If you want to understand what it was like at the time of the ancient prophets and kings and what was going on, that's a good one on that. This one, Great Controversy, starts with the fall of Jerusalem, and it takes you right through to the new earth. It's an excellent book, and feel free to take them. These are couple I had at home and anybody can have them who wants them and if you want one and did get one we'll get you more but you see here a, a girl with a third grade education writing these do you realize that she has written more pages than any other woman in history there's some men who have written more than she but she is the woman who has written the most in history. And Paul Harvey, probably about 30 years ago, he did a tribute to her when he was on the radio. Notice what she says here in the book Ministry of Healing. This is how to live healthfully. Here, tobacco is a slow, insidious, but most malignant poison. Now, the word cancer wasn't used in those days, but malignant was means same thing, you see. And Clive McKay, I've met him, Cornell University, he said, whatever may be the religious belief of a reader, he or she cannot help but gain much guidance in a better and healthier way of life from reading the major works of Ellen G. White, every modern specialist in nutrition whose life is dedicated to human welfare, must be impressed by the writings and leadership of Ellen White. 
Where did somebody with a third grade education discover these things? From the word of God and God impressing her mind. Which answers one of the questions, by the way, that was asked tonight. Does God still impress people today? I believe that he worked on her. And that he enlightened her in many of these areas. Let's look further. So we find the last remnant, everlasting gospel, keep the commandments of God, a worldwide expansion, and the gift of prophecy. Look what it says in Revelation 14, 13. In Revelation 14, 13, it says, Then I heard another voice from heaven saying to me, Right blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. What does it mean, their works follow them? It means it follows them to judgment. And that they will be judged at the end of time when Jesus comes. So, the last day remnant will not be trying to communicate with the dead because they won't be trapped by seances and uh, mystics and spiritualists. Why? Because they know that the dead are in their grave. It It gives me a great deal of peace to know that my mother and my father just went to sleep and praise God that I have the hope of seeing them wake up again. Nothing can hurt them. Even if I turn out to be a murderer, it's not going to hurt them at all. I'd rather that than to have them up in heaven looking down and saying, oh boy, he sure turned out to be a scoundrel. You see, it brings peace to a person's mind. Revelation 18, 1 through 3. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. As I mentioned before, that's a sign of emphasis. And what else has it become? It has become the dwelling place of demons. All kinds of things are coming in to Christianity. A prison of every foul spirit and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. And the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. God is telling us that it's going to be a rather unpopular message to preach. But Babylon and her children need to hear the message. They need to know what the truth really is. Look at 18.4 Revelation. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her plagues. This is what God wants to spare us from. The choice is ours. The remnant in the last days will be preaching everlasting gospel, keeping God's commandments, have a worldwide message, and they will have the gift of prophecy. They will also speak of the sleep, that death is asleep until Jesus comes. They will be calling people out of Babylon. And then in Proverbs 4, 18, it says, But the path of the just 
is like the shining sun that shines ever brighter until the perfect day. In plain words, we are to learn more. We are to gain a better understanding of God and the word of God all the way up to the time of the end. We find that Martin Luther had a present truth in his day. That present truth was righteousness by faith and that the word of God, sola scriptura, the scriptures only, is the basis of what the Christian believes. This was his message in his day. And on October 31st, 1517, this young German nailed 95 things that he protested against on the doors of the Wittenberg Castle Cathedral. And so he wasn't the only one. He was followed by others. I think of John Calvin. He may not have gotten everything right, but he was bringing out new light from the scriptures. And then we find the Anabaptists I mentioned. We can think of Farrell and Knox and others who came along adding to the jewel box. They didn't have all the truth, perhaps, but they were adding the gems together. And God was bringing people back to obedience. They were discovering things. You know, I got news for you. Seventh-day Adventists are not the first ones to discover the seventh-day Sabbath. The Millerites, of whom we have a, a heritage that comes from them, are the second coming of Jesus and the sanctuary message. He kept Sunday. He was a Baptist. And you know what? Seventh-day Adventists owe their understanding of the Sabbath to the Seventh-day Baptists. It was a woman by the name of Rachel Oakes Preston who told Frederick Wheeler, an Adventist minister, about the Sabbath. And she said, you're not keeping all the commandments of God. He said, me? I just gave a sermon that we need to keep God's commandments. She says, but you're not doing it. Well, he went home and he studied to prove her wrong. The, the very next week he got up and he told people he was going to keep the Seventh-day Sabbath because it was indeed in harmony with the Word of God. My friends, God is calling us back to the truths of his Word. John Robinson was the pastor of the pilgrims before they left England. And notice what he said to them. Before they left, he says, I charge you before God, thank you, that you follow me no farther than you have seen me follow Christ. For I am verily persuaded that the Lord hath more truth and light yet to bring, break forth from his holy word. This wise pastor, in telling them before they left, you study the word of God because we've been in so much spiritual darkness for so many centuries. We've got more to discover. And so he added to the jewel box and encouraged them to do likewise. Notice John ten sixteen, And other sheep I have which are not in this fold. Them also I must bring. And they will hear my voice. And there will be one flock and one shepherd. Now, a lot of people are talking about the ecumenical movement bringing people together. It's one thing to be, bring people together 
That's what Satan wants to do. He wants to bring them together under false teachings. But God wants to bring people out of darkness into light under true principles, under biblical principles. My friends, this is what he's calling us to. And I want to go back to that previous one here. God is leading people out of Babylon into truth. Now, I want you to know that I was a member of two very prominent churches, two prominent denominations. And I loved the Lord there, and the people I associated with loved the Lord. But it wasn't until I got into college, I had never, never read the Bible before. I didn't know Genesis from Revelation. It wasn't until I started studying the scriptures that I realized that the things that I had been taught were not in harmony with scripture. And it, it was difficult for me because we were a very close family. But you know, I made a decision. I said, my dad especially tried to persuade me not to leave that church. And I said, I almost listened to him. But I said to myself one day as I was driving along, you know, if I don't take a stand, they'll never know the truth. If I don't take a stand for the truth, they'll, they'll, they won't follow. But if perhaps I take a stand, perhaps some of them will follow. And so I took my stand for the Lord and I was baptized into the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Not because there's anything special about Seventh-day Adventists. What's special is the message that they're preaching. I believed it. And if I didn't believe that they were preaching the truth, I'd go find somebody that was preaching the truth. But as far as I have discovered... I have never discovered any other church that is collecting all the jewels into the box like they did. I stepped out in faith and I was baptized. And you know what? <laughs> My dad gave me a hard time. Hard time. But you know, at the age of 81, he called my house and we were living in South Haven, Michigan at the time. He just said, he started talking about the weather and everything. It's on my answering machine. I came home and discovered it. And he was talking about the weather. And then at the end, he said, oh, by the way, you might be interested in knowing, today I joined the Albany Seventh-day Adventist Church. Click! <laughs> I, Whoa! What? what did he say? And I called my family down. I played that again. And sure enough, that's what it said. You see, he had been watching me through the years. He had been watching me. If you're not a better person for standing for the cause of God than you were before, you need to realize that people are watching you to see if Christianity works for you before they buy it. Remember the light bulbs I talked about? Nobody wants broken light bulbs. They want to see a light bulb that works. And if Christianity works in your life, if you are lifting Christ up, he will draw all men unto him. 
My friends, that's what he wants to do for you. I'd like to share with you one of the cards. And again, I'm not pressuring anybody. I'm just sharing with you my own personal experience. But on this card, there are five questions. And this is just offering you a service. We're not pressing you into anything. Because God wants people to make decisions based on reason. And he says here, number one, and if you wish to check any of these and just leave it on the table, I'd appreciate it. I choose to follow the teachings of Jesus as found in the Bible. Secondly, out of love for Jesus, I choose to keep all of his commandments, including the seventh-day Sabbath. If you have been impressed that what we are teaching is from the scriptures, I know a lot of people say, oh, you're a cult because you keep the Sabbath instead of Sunday. I think you have discovered in the course of these meetings, have I talked of anything that I didn't show you a Bible reason for? Have I showed you anything that wasn't in scripture? And then, I want to follow Jesus in baptism or rebaptism. There's some people who have never been baptized in their lives. And it would be wrong of me not to offer you that option. And if you feel you need to be rebaptized, you might want to check that. And quite frankly, the next one I choose to worship Jesus in spirit and truth and become part of the Seventh day Adventist Church. If I were a Methodist, I'd ask you to join the Methodist Church. But I'm not. I'm right up front. If you would like to join the Seventh day Adventist Church, or at least visit the Seventh day Adventist Church, see what these strange animals look like and how they worship. Check that, you see. And the last one, I have questions I would like to discuss and then write them on the back. I know we've gone over time tonight and I, I don't know if the recording's run out or not, but I would like to just have you look on this and if the Lord convicts you on any of these points, check them, leave them on the table. In the meantime, let's have prayer. Tomorrow night's our last night and we're going to be dealing with the Holy Spirit and the unpardonable sin as it's mentioned in Scripture. And I'd like to invite you all to come back for that. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you for being so merciful and, and for all the blessings you've given us. Tonight we've run really long. But I just pray that the Spirit of Truth has been here and that the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts Help us in these last days to be a part of the remnant who stand for the truth, though the heavens fall. Bless us in Jesus' name. Amen.